show today let's get right to it we take back america every tuesday that's what we do myself and professor harvey k the professor emeritus at the university of wisconsin green bay reclaiming that radical history of america that's what we mean when we say you know take back america we taking this thing back and we are doing it with the help of some friends not just you kansas city but the legend Carl Sandberg, because we're doing some poetry today. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do. Kansas City, we are nominated for Best Local Podcast, according to the Pitch KC. Trying to be a three-time Best Local Podcast, trying to go back to back to back. I also got nominated for some things. Best Personality, LOL, and Best Radio DJ or something like that. Kansas City, I love you. Thank you so much. I'll insert the link in the show notes. That's all I got. It is a good day to be Kansas Cityan. Absolutely. No show tomorrow. I started another job this week because of course I did. Back in your feeds on Thursday. We'll see ya in the morning. Bye. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K., my brother. He is a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Oh, did you just pop your collar, sir? Did you just pop your collar in solidarity? I wanted to see if you were paying attention. Harvey K., when you pop your collar, we take notice on this your KC Morning Show, my friend. Every Tuesday, we take back America. That's what we do, reclaiming that radical history. We got it. Got a hell of a progressive playbook. I think we should go back to it. Now, we got a whole lot to get to. We're doing some progressive poetry. That's why your collar is popped. You are back on the lawn at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. There's Harvey K. Is that that a guitar? (laughs) That sounds more like when I was an undergraduate at Rutgers. (laughs) How you been, brother? I've been okay. Did a little traveling last week to New York City so my wife and daughter could take in a couple of days of the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. I think I've said before I'm not a tennis fan. So I spent some time visiting friends and business. Not business. I don't do business. (laughs) Comrades. I met with some people from Jacobin, David Feldman with the David Feldman Show. It was that kind of thing, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of small meals 
with good friends at night, catching up with the rest of the family when they came back from the tennis tournament and going out to a full meal. That's what I was going to say. I saw a lot of smiles in those photos you sent me. Yeah, my wife's like a fanatic fan of Rafael Nadal. And they got lucky enough so that they ended up in the stadium that he was playing on on that first night. And he won. It's on my bucket list. I didn't realize you were so bourgeois. (laughs) (laughs) There are certain sports that are decidedly not working class. I didn't say I could do any of it, but I do enjoy the back and forth. Literally a good back and forth. That's why they developed that game Pong for back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) You understand me, Professor K. (laughs) I feel like we're stepping on the lead here because we record these things Monday night. Happy Labor Day, my brother. Thank you. And happy Labor Day to you. I do want to say to people, this is a strange moment given the last 45 years. Why? It's the best of times and the worst of times. To put it this way, you know, do you want the good news first or the bad news first? That kind of thing. (laughs) The bad news, let's start off there, is of course that we still are not out of the woods regarding November. I know that people are feeling a little more buoyant and upbeat about it because two reasons. One, the Republicans do know how to their pants. (laughs) (laughs) On their own accord. On their own accord. And Trump is definitely helping them do that. But equally important is the fact that Biden, at least, you know, when he won the presidency, people said, what do you expect? I said to them, well, if he can be as enthusiastic for the good stuff as he was when he was a neoliberal in the Senate, when he was trying to take down Social Security and Medicare and all that, or at least whittle it down, if he can get the energy now to start talking like a progressive, then we'll be okay. Well, he didn't. But now he has begun a bit to do so. His address about the right wing threatens democracy. It was a well-spirited address. Okay. He had the energy. The only problem was he's still stuck in that kind of soul of America routine, as opposed to saying, these are the things we're going to do to transcend this crisis, to show those semi-fascists that Americans want democracy. The problem is that we've not been cultivating democracy as we should. We should be providing a higher minimum wage. We should be providing workers' rights once again in the workplace. We should be providing voting rights. I mean, he got close to it, but he's got to be even more aggressive. And he's got to say, and I know he couldn't do it that night. He was trying not to sound like he was just doing a campaign speech. But what he had to say was, in November, you either vote for democracy or you vote against it. You know, something like that. Question of labor is, of course, high on anyone on the left. Got to have labor on the mind because there can be no left without a progressive, committed, determined, energized, activist, insurgent right now labor movement. We need that desperately. And I will tell you that though it's great to have witnessed the beginnings of this resurgence by way of the Staten Island Amazon warehouse with Chris Small's leadership, It's great to see Starbucks workers around the country organizing and many other retail establishments, both chain and independent. It still remains the case that we have not seen the kind of democratic surge, upsurge that we need to truly challenge the powers that be. Not only because the Democrats failure to encourage it. I know that Biden's paid lip service, but the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, is underfunded and understaffed. It's also the fact that the AFL-CIO the labor establishment leadership just has not gone out to mobilize. You've got folks like Sean O'Brien of the Teamsters and Sarah Nelson, and they've teamed up with Bernie to take the show on the road, so to speak. But the AFL-CIO has got to show a serious, if you like, determined commitment to support these young folks, and most of them are young folks who are trying to organize and get recognized as 
union people. I mean, it's just frustrating in many ways. It's not yet exasperating because these young people are continuing to organize. I will say this, one of my favorite students in all the many, many years I taught is now a labor organizer with the National Nurses Union. And she's batting a thousand in her organizing efforts throughout the country. She's been out in California. I mean, it's really impressive. I'm not going to use her name because I don't want to necessarily set her up for any kind of abuse or attack, but I'm just proud as can be. And you hire the right organizers, you can go a long way in reaching out to people. I'll also tell you, when I flew to New York, I wore my airline flight attendant's button. I'm not an airline flight attendant, but Sarah Nelson gave me some buttons, AFA BLM button. I always take a picture before I go on the plane and I say, I'm flying in solidarity with the AFA organizing efforts on Delta, because that's when I fly Delta. And it's really nice. I get lots of tweets and messages from around the country thanking me for my solidarity. Those kind of things warm my heart. I'm in the labor movement. I'm a retired AFT member. But it's important that we express our solidarity at every occasion we can. Especially when we get the chance to express them in such beautiful and powerful ways as what we're about to do in today's episode. Do you want to break down what we're getting into? Yeah, well, as people may know, if they followed us these last number of weeks, we actually turned away from prose for a bit, like great words of American history, to the great poetic words of American history, especially of the 1930s. Well, we did Whitman, right? Some months ago. We did Langston Hughes, who both you and I admire the poetry of. I mean, it was great. We did Archibald MacLeish, America Was Promises. I think in the 1930s, there are three truly great poets, Langston Hughes, Archibald MacLeish, and Carl Sandburg. Sandburg, of course, is from the 19-teens all the way through into the 60s. But some of his best stuff, I think, was in the 30s. So the poem we're going to do tonight is from 1916. But the reason I say some of his best stuff, people can't see it, but I'm holding up a book for you, Hartzell. Carl Sandburg, The People, Yes. An entire book. Best thing to do is to read this little piece to you. The fine thing about The People, Yes, is that it is indubitable speech. Here's a man speaking, a man who knows all sorts of conditions of men who can be wise and witty, stirring and nonsensical with them all. What he does is he actually talks about Americans in poetry, book-length poetry. And I will tell people, if they know the name Tom Frank, who grew up in your neighboring state of Kansas, you're in Missouri, and he wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Well, his most recent book is titled The People Know, N-O, using Carl Sandburg's The People Yes, because Sandburg's The People Yes is this great populist book-length poem. Well, Carl Sandburg himself lived until July 22nd, 1967. He was an American poet, biographer, a journalist, and an editor. And what they're not indicating in his little Wikipedia blurb is that Carl Sandburg was a socialist organizer in Wisconsin, northeast Wisconsin, the territory sort of up north of Milwaukee, extending all the way up to Green Bay. He learned about America on the road. He learned about it in diverse kinds of jobs, early part of the 20th century. And he ended up in Wisconsin around 1910, I think it was. I'm, my dates may be off. And 1910, the early part of the 19-teens, he joined what was then called the Social Democratic Party. That was the name that really was the Socialist Party. And they had already changed the national title for the party to Socialist Party. But the original title that Debs had been involved with was, in fact, Social Democratic Party. And in Wisconsin, the name Social Democratic Party hung on for a while, as I understand it. So he was organizing here in Northeast Wisconsin for the Socialist Party. They became the secretary to, I guess it was the first socialist mayor of Milwaukee. 
And by the way, Milwaukee, Wisconsin had a series of socialist mayors in the 20th century. When he was here, he also met the woman he would marry, Lillian Steichen, Wisconsin girl. And what's notable is that her brother became one of the most famous American photographers. He and Steichen, during World War II, actually did work together. They created a whole exhibit in New York about what the war was all about. Sandberg wrote this poem we're going to deal with today titled, I am the people, the mob. And this is very much an expression of a sort of labor socialist perspective on things. Before we get to it, however, I want to read a little bit from the memorial ceremony that was held at the Lincoln Memorial, because I'm leaving so much out. He won the Pulitzer Prize three times for poetry, three times. He produced a multi-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln, a different kind of biography than historical scholars. He did historical scholarship, but it really was written from the vantage point of someone who himself grew up in Illinois from humble beginnings. You know, it's like the kind of alternative perspective on Lincoln probably Americans might appreciate if they get a chance to read it. Well, Archibald MacLeish prepared and delivered the eulogy at this ceremony at the Lincoln Memorial in memory of Carl Sandburg. And I thought it was interesting since we just did MacLeish last time that we get a chance to hear MacLeish on Sandberg, after which I'm going to then hand over completely the mic for you to read the poem. Okay. And then we'll talk about the poem after that. Recite the poem, not read the poem, recite the poem. So in the early paragraphs of this eulogy, he talks about Sandberg as really an American poet who spoke to Americans, spoke of Americans and to Americans. And it might well be the case, I think, as he implies, as you'll see in a moment, that maybe others didn't understand the poetry, because it was so deeply American and so deeply American, if you like, from the bottom up of America. I'm going to jump in the middle of this eulogy and hope it'll make sense. He says, MacLeish, a touchstone of America. If ever a man wrote for a particular people, however, he may have reached in his heart for all people, it was Sandberg. And if ever a man was heard by those he wrote for, it was Carl. Europeans, even the nearest in that direction, the English, do not truly understand him, but Americans do. There is a raciness in the writing, in the old, strict sense of the word raciness, a tang, a liveliness, a pungency which is native and natural to the American ear. And underneath the raciness, like the smell of earth under the vividness of rain, there's a seriousness which is native too, the kind of human, even mortal seriousness you hear in Lincoln. An American touchstone. But is there not a contradiction here? Can a body of work bound together by credulity constitute a touchstone for Americans? For Americans now, and remember, he's delivering this in 1967. He says, for Americans now, once perhaps in the generation of Jefferson, or once again in the generation of Lincoln. But now, there's a notion around in great parts of the world, in Asia and in certain countries of Europe, that America has changed in recent years, that the last thing one can expect from America or from Americans today is credulity. It is asserted that the American people have now, as the saying goes, grown up, that they have put aside childish things, beliefs which cannot be proven, that they have come to see the world, what the world is, to put their trust in the certainties of power, that they have become in brief what is favorably known as realistic about themselves, about humanity, about the destiny of man. Listening to contemporary speeches, reading the newspapers, one can see where these opinions of America may have come from. 
But are they true? Are they really true? Can we believe in this place, thinking of this man, that they are true? He's standing at the Lincoln Memorial, you'll recall, McLeish. Sandberg was an American. He was an American also of our time, of our generation. He died 57 days ago. He was seen and known and talked to by many in this meeting. His struggles were the struggles of the generation to which most of us belong, the struggles of the Great Depression and the many wars and the gathering racial crisis and all the rest. He was a man of our time who lived in our time, laughed at the jokes our time has laughed at, shed its tears. And yet Sandberg was a credulous man, a man credulous about humanity, a man who believed more than he could prove about humanity. And Sandberg, though he listened to those who thought themselves realists, though he was attentive to the hard-headed, was not convinced by them. In the people, yes, he wrote, or it is said, and I'm now quoting McLeish, quoting Sandberg, the strong win against the weak, the strong lose against the stronger, and across the bitter years and the howling winters, the deathless dream will be the stronger. Shall man always go on, dog eat dog? Who says so? The stronger? And who is the stronger? What Sandberg knew and said was what America knew from the beginning and said from the beginning and has not yet, no matter what is believed of her, forgotten how to say that those who are credulous about the destiny of man, who believe more than they can prove of the future of the human race, will make that future shape that destiny. This was his great achievement, that he found a new way in an incredulous and disbelieving and often cynical time to say what Americans have always known. And beyond that, there was another and even greater achievement that the people listened. They are listening still. Now, I want to make a note to people, if they can, go back and make sure you listen to Hartzell and my discussion recitation of McLeish's America Was Promises. And for that matter, go back to our performances of Langston Hughes poems, both Let America Be America Again and Freedom's Plow. That's the kind of talk. That's the kind of talk about reality and beyond the immediate reality, the possibilities that Langston Hughes, Archibald MacLeish, and Carl Sandburg all shared a sense of the credulousness that was in their minds. How's that? Now, the poem itself, I love this poem, I Am the People, the Mob, as I said, was written in 1960, by which time he had moved to Chicago and he became famous as the poet of Chicago. You know, the tall shoulders of those new skyscrapers are going up. But I like to think of Sandberg as having learned about this stuff first and foremost on the road and very much as an organizer for the socialists here in Wisconsin, with all due respect to Chicago, with all due respect. Though, I got to confess, here in Green Bay, the bears still suck, they say. But anyhow, so I'm going to hand over to my brother here, Hartzell, to read this poem, to recite this poem. This will be the shortest poem we ever do, but it is very powerful. Listen carefully to what Sandberg is saying to us, because what Sandberg said then is absolutely true now, and I hope not forever. All yours, Hartzell. I am the people, the mob, the crowd, the mass. Do you know that all the great work of the world is done through me? I am the working man, the inventor, the maker of the world's food and clothes. I am the audience that witnesses history. The Napoleons come from me and the Lincolns. They die. And then I send forth more Napoleons and Lincolns. I am the seed ground. 
I am a prairie that will stand for much plowing. Terrible storms pass over me. I forget. The best of me is sucked out and wasted. I forget. Everything but death comes to me and makes me work and give up what I have. And I forget. Sometimes I growl, shake myself and spatter a few red drops for history to remember. Then I forget. When I, the people, learn to remember. When I, the people, use the lessons of yesterday and no longer forget who robbed me last year, who played me for a fool, then there will be no speaker in all the world say the name the people with any fleck of a sneer in his voice or any far-off smile of derision. The mob, the crowd, the mass will arrive then. Fabulous. Sorry, I know I'm not supposed to publicly applaud you, but that was beautifully done, Hartzell. That was absolutely beautifully done. This poem is so powerful because this is a poem which really gets at the fact that we just forget, but we don't forget by accident. Let's also remember that. And I don't think for a moment Sandberg would claim that. We forget because those who wield the power, those who suck it out of us, as he said, they want us to forget. They work hard to make us forget. To forget what? To forget that we the people, we the people are the folks who not only do the work, we the people are the ones who carry the burdens, right? We're the ones who are by right, in this nation at least, should be the rulers to govern ourselves. Now, let's turn this in a socialist direction, which is what Sandberg really, I think, had in mind. That is, that working people, when they remember, will no longer endure it. And guess what? We're tired of putting up with the shit. You know, it's not that people remember and then rise up. It's that in the course of the struggle, we begin to remember. But it's also important that we get these words out there for people to hear this and to recognize themselves in Sandberg's words. That's the whole key to Sandberg, that he speaks in such a way so that people can recognize themselves in his words and make better sense of who they themselves are and what they're capable of doing and creating. You know, this poetry thing, Professor K, there might be something to this. <laughs> yeah, it might be. <laughs> might be. Well, maybe we'll have to find a little more poetry. Maybe we'll come back. I mean, Sandberg's got, you know, I showed you the volume. I mean, it's just volumes of this stuff. Unbelievable. Similarly, I mean, McLeish, there's some good stuff. There's another poet, Stephen Vincent Benet, I think is his name, who was a little more sort of lighter than the three guys we've done so far. But he did some really great work in the 30s. He didn't live all the way through World War II. He served in World War I, but his health was never good. So I think he had to leave in mid-service and he struggled with his health, but he, he did some really great stuff. And he wrote a play about the four freedoms, basically, which he did in verse, which is great. And then there's another fellow who died not too many years ago. He lived till 103, Norman Corwin, who was the great radio writer and producer. And he's got some stuff which we should definitely perhaps recover. In fact, maybe we should be doing that sooner rather than later. And that's old radio. And you know I'm a sucker for old radio. So maybe that might be our route, Harvey. Yeah, yeah, maybe that is. Well, how about this? Before I let you go, though, because I know you don't brag on yourself, so I'm going to brag on you and make sure you get these plugs in. You have a new edition of some pretty fantastic work coming out. And, oh, I, want yeah. you, and I want you to talk about it, my brother. Let's talk about this. Okay, so my very first book, which never really went out of print, it just got published in the course of its history, now will be a third publisher. My very first book was published in 1984, the winter of 84-85, and it was titled The British 
Marxist historians. Now, I trained in Latin American studies, but in the course of my work for my PhD, I've read a lot on slavery. My field was landlord and peasant relations in Spanish America, but I was terribly frustrated by the way in which social scientists treated questions of landlord and peasant relations. And I went looking for another way of understanding it. And I came across in this little bookstore off the LSU campus, a little books, I came across the work of Eugene Genovese, who, by the way, eventually in his life, he became very conservative, but he was one of the great left historians, one of the great radical historians. And his subject pretty much from start to finish was slavery. His first book was The Political Economy of Slavery. And I titled my dissertation in honor of his political economy title. I titled my dissertation, The Political Economy of Seniorialism, again, landlords and peasants in Spanish America. But he insisted that I give up reading the social sciences and I start reading these British historians who worked on peasant struggles in the Middle Ages, who worked on 17th century revolution in England, who worked on the working class risings and movements of the 18th and 19th centuries. Their names were Rodney Hilton, Christopher Hill, E.P. Thompson, Eric Hobsbawm, and somebody who was a bit older and had worked on the very question of how feudalism turned into capitalism, Maurice Dobb. And to read them was so liberating because all of a sudden, I realized the degree to which social scientists were avoiding, truly avoiding the question of class and class struggle. And what that generation of cohort of historians did in their work from the 1940s all the way through into the, oof, I guess much of the work got done even into the course of the 1980s and 90s, is show us the degree to which working people in their struggles come to recognize who they are and what they're capable of accomplishing. And they don't win necessarily but they do make history, that working people make history, whether they're slaves or peasants or workers of the modern age in industries and service. And it was just so liberating. So I decided that it was important to challenge all those social scientists who were writing in a rather obtuse way about these kinds of questions. So I wrote the book, The British Marxist Historians, the first book on the group. And it actually is my claim to fame in Australia, Britain. I mean, they don't know me for Thomas Paine and the fight for the four freedoms necessarily because they know me for my work on the British stuff. But I'll also say, this is worth noting, I got to know them, four of the five of them, and they really were very generous. I spent time with them and they were all encouraging me. They said, well, you seem like a pretty smart guy. Once you take care of writing about us, you got to start writing about America. You got to start writing in such a way that you take the kinds of things you learn from us and apply them. And basically, my Thomas Paine and the Promise of America and my Fight for the Four Freedoms books were really shaped by the kinds of historical, historiographical skills that they passed on to me. So the first edition came out in, eight, in 84. And then in 95, another publisher picked up the book from the first and brought out the second edition, which has a foreword by one of the historians, E.P. Thompson. I also brought out another book titled The Education of Desire, Marxist in the Writing of History, and Christopher Hill, one of the group that I spoke of, he wrote the foreword to that. They're very generous. So now the book is coming out in a what we'll call a third edition. So you've got the main text, and before that is the preface, the original preface, then there's the 1996 preface and the forward by our Cobbsman. And I've added a new preface, so there's it's all this new material up front. But the new material is not what I would call in any way historical or theoretical. It is a memoir note of my experience with those historians, key moments with those historians that I 
you know, I've always wanted to tell others and sometimes I got to and sometimes I didn't, but now it's there. And some of the moments that they really impressed me and, and there are some funny moments there. So the book comes out officially on September 30th, available in all the usual suspect places. I won't use the the A word, but I can tell you if you get a chance to go online to Red Emma's, which is a cooperative left bookstore in Baltimore, they will have it in stock. They already have it arriving. If some people over in England hear this, I know it's going to be in all the bookstores possible over there. It's a book that's still used in courses over in Britain. I don't know about back here in this country. But if you have any interest in radical history, Marxist ideas, how history is made, I do actually do think people should buy it. You don't have to know British history to appreciate it, I hope. And I got to say, the cover from what you've been tweeting out is gorgeous. Congratulations, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very much. Where can these folks find you on the Twitters? Harvey J.K. H-A-R-V-E-Y. Initial J-K-A-Y-E. And what about you? How do they find you? They can get me at Hartzell965. Then get this show, the KC Morning Show, at KC Morning Show on Facebook and Twitter and at the KC Morning Show on the Instagrams. On this Labor Day recording, when I say solidarity forever, I mean it because I love you and you're stuck with me, man. And I want to congratulate you on your new job that you're starting tomorrow. Okay, those people don't know just how lucky they are to have you. Oh, thank you, brother. We're lucky to have each other, and we're going to go change the world. You bet. I ride an old paint. I lead an old dam. I'm going to Montana to throw a hula hand. They feed in the coolies. They water in the draw. The tails are all matted. The backs are all all ride around, ride around real slow. The fiery and snuffy are raring to go. Old Bill Brown had a daughter and a son.
healthy or rare in 